Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 73. And just for those who are interested, uh, Grace has a blog running now from uh, the Dominican Republic. And I couldn't quite remember the address, so I'll just have Lisa send it out. Uh, And if you're interested, you can follow that. Her first post was A Day in the Life of Grace, basically, uh, which was all work and no play. Now, I know that's hard to believe when you're caring for 30 boys um, who, uh, you know, have to have their wash done every day and and have to be fed, and uh, they're in charge of them for several, about six or seven hours of the day, you know, and and all those things. But um, I affectionately say she's living the dream. Her and her friend Sophia are down there uh, doing what the Lord has called them to do in serving down at the orphanage. So Lisa will send that out, and you can follow her if you like. Psalm 73, uh, if you're able, would you stand with me this morning? And we will re- I will read the verses for today. Psalm 73, verses 10 through 15. Let's pray first. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come upon us, that your Holy Spirit would fill us and, and open our eyes, that we would have understanding, not just understanding to know what it means, but the understanding to live what it means. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 73, verses 10 through 15 this morning. Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now just to refresh your memories, we started on... Psalm 73 a couple weeks ago, and we've been working through, and and part of the the real issue here is understanding that Asaph, the the guy who has has written this, who is the choir director in the temple, is struggling with the issue of, is God fair on certain things? How is it that the unjust seem to do so well, and here I am doing my best to follow what the Lord says and to live a life that's pleasing to Him, and I just seem to be getting the short end of the stick again and again and again. And here he comes to the question, is holiness worth it? Is holiness worth it? Now, uh, we could go through history and look at some people... And, and uh, just the standouts of those who lived holy lives and what happens to them. I mean, there was that guy, John the Baptist, and he, he lost his head over holiness. Uh, and, and then we see many others throughout history who have worked to live holy lives that seem to come up bad in this world. Bad in this world. And Asaph is asking these questions. I mean, he is wrestling with these questions. And you know what? These are our questions, too. These aren't just for you know, 28 or 2,900 years ago, these are for today as well. How is it that we are to understand God's actions and God's fairness concerning the prosperity of those who don't believe in him, those who don't even pursue him, don't particularly care to have anything to do with him, and yet here I am doing everything I can to remain faithful to God, and and I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. 
Well, let's look at some instances of holiness uh, throughout Scripture and throughout history first to get an idea of what holiness has meant in different ways. Now, in the Old Testament, the Israelites, uh, they were a people set apart for the Lord. There were things that they couldn't do because if they went and did those things, they would be considered uh, unholy, unclean. Like they, they couldn't intermarry with the uh, surrounding nations. They, had to, they couldn't give their sons, they couldn't give their daughters. They had to remain uh, within as, as the covenant people of God. Um, they, they couldn't uh, get carried away into idolatrous practices. Um, you know, they couldn't make Asherah poles. Asherah pole would be basically, a, if I had to equate it with something today, a totem pole or something like that, that you would carve images on and worship it. They couldn't make sacrifices to Baal, even though sometimes they went and did that, and they sacrificed their firstborn. I mean, that was, you, you could not be holy and sacrifice your firstborn to a pagan god. They couldn't erect high places. They couldn't erect altars or anything like that. They had to remain separate from the nation's around them. They'd stay away from certain foods. They had a sacrificial system that, that would cover their sin. They had the shedding of blood on a regular basis. This, these were all carefully laid out by the Lord, and even to the point where they had to keep certain fabrics separate in their clothing. Okay? Failure, failure to obey the Lord was a failure of holiness. Okay? Then we come to the New Testament. New Testament is much more associated with the obedience of the heart if your heart is right, then your obedience will flow out of your heart, and, and there we have holiness. Um, not only was it wrong to murder, it was wrong to hate. Not only was it wrong to commit adultery, it was wrong to lust in your, with, with your eyes, etc. You couldn't just go through the exterior motions of holiness. Remember, Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside but inside is all death. He says your heart has to be right. Your heart has to be changed. You can't go through the exterior motions or rituals or practices and be considered holy. You have to have a changed heart. Holiness will flow out of that. Well, then we go into the, the early church. Uh, and the measurement of holiness within the early church was often how you were separate from society. Uh, we don't do this. We don't do that. Society goes there. We're not going to go there. We're not going to do those things. The ultimate expression came in, in the monastic life where people simply left society and they went to their own little areas, their own little enclaves, and lived out holiness as they understood it within there. And, and you know, Luther would comment upon all of these times where he would go and, uh, you know, he'd sleep on the stone floor and he would fast for days on end. And if he had particular thoughts, you know, he, monks were even known to beat themselves, uh, to try to purge themselves of sin. Well, this was a very hard life. And those who pursue it, pursued it thought the rewards of holiness would be great. Well, then along comes the Reformation. The Reformation is much more along the lines of what we'll call vocational holiness. I'm an accountant. I need to go out and be a Christian in my accounting firm. They need to see that I live out my faith in everything that I do, whether I'm an accountant, a teacher, a lawyer, a doctor, a ditch digger, whatever I am, the things of Christ must be shown in how I live out in the world. Out in the world. To remove yourself from from society to try to be holy was really counterproductive to what Scripture said. Now, modern day, 
what's holiness in the modern day? Well, it's pretty much sim- follows along the lines of the Reformation. There are different practices that we might use, practices of, of our devotional life, uh, our spiritual practices, our prayer lives, um, uh, worship. You know, all these things are tied into holy living because they ch- flow from a changed heart. Okay? Now, is anybody holier than anybody else? Well, when you become a believer, you become a saint. You don't have to wait for the special services of the Roman church to be, reach sainthood. You are a saint. Now, but each of us here would admit there are some who are more saintly than others, right? Well, we just know some people that, that if, and I know this is bad theology, but if you've got a prayer request, you know who should be praying for you, okay? Because they seem to be a lot closer to the Lord than others, Okay? But Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will obey me. See, it's not, you will obey me and I will love you. Jesus says, I love you. I have given my life for you. Your life has been completely changed. You are a new creation in Christ. Now, out of that love, live like it. Obey the words of Christ. Obey the words of God. Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. It's far more than a mindless crossing the T's and dotting the I's. It comes out in a changed heart in response to the grace that has been given to us. So there's an encapsulation of holiness okay, for us, and, and we'll expand upon it here in a little bit more. So back to Psalm 73, and just to review, remember verse 1. Look at verse 1. All of the psalm is answered in verse 1. And this is great because I want you to fix that in your mind because it will be very important in just a few moments. Asaph begins with a statement. Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. That's a statement he makes as a fact. And that's how he starts. He doesn't start with his questions. He doesn't start with his struggles. He starts with a statement of who God is. So everything else that follows that is under that umbrella of his belief, of his knowledge of what God is and who, how he acts. But then he goes on to tell us how he has observed the wicked. Look at verse four. He says there, verse end second half of verse three. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death. They're not concerned about death. They don't fear God. The body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. They wear their their, uh, arrogance. They wear their pride like a necklace, okay, to show their wealth. That was one of the ways that they showed wealth in the Old Testament was by the fancy necklaces that they wore. And Asaph is equating their pride in not believing in God, not following God, but even their arrogance, he's equating that with this, how they're showing it off. Okay? They seem to be popular with everyone. They seem to thrive on their pride. And, and, and remember, this is a problem of Asaph's perception of the way God is. Not a problem of the way God is, but a problem of his perception of the way God is. I mean, we could even get... We can even put ourselves in Asaph's place and we pray that, you know, God, how can you let the wicked do this? How can you let them go along this way? Why don't you strike them down? And I tell you what, Lord, you give me their prosperity and I promise it won't make me arrogant or proud. 
right? Hmm. I often think, you know, the reason I haven't won the lottery, I mean, I don't play the lottery, but that has something to do with it. Um, the reason I, don't, I haven't won the lottery is because I can't be trusted with it. I mean, think of the lives that have been ruined by a sudden influx of $50 million. You think, how can a life be ruined by a sudden influx of $50 million? Oh, <laughs> okay. Think all the things you could have. Think how you could become easily be- uh, $50 million. Like, you know, you could be such a slave to so much stuff. You know, I think all the friends that you would get, all the relatives that would come out of the woodwork, Cousin Randy, you know. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> All right. And then verse 12. Look at verse 12. Kind of gives a summary of all this. He says, Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They've increased in their wealth. Now remember, this is his problem of perception. He doesn't quite understand everything that's going on here. And this brings us to 13 and 14. And this is the question for us today. He says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. This is, he's kept inwardly my heart pure and externally holy. Wash my hands in innocence. For I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. What's the advantage of a holy life if those who are unholy get what I want and I get what I don't want? In fact, Asaph is not just not getting what he wants. He's getting all the things that he really doesn't like. He's getting these trials. He's getting these sufferings. He's in trouble. Now, Asaph has a problem, and and I've mentioned this before. It's a very technical theological term, but Asaph is belly button gazing. He cannot get his gaze away from himself. He is so fixated just on himself and his own problems and his own issues that he can't see the truth. He can't see what is real around him. All he can see is, you know, Lord, I'm just, I just don't understand this. I don't like it. Here are these people, and they're, they don't believe in you, and they don't like you, and they don't seek after you, and they're getting everything, and I'm over here seeking after you and loving you and serving you, and I'm getting nothing. How can this be? Maybe I ought to pitch this out. Is holiness holiness really worth it? Well, his eyes had become so focused on himself, so filled with envy, he didn't understand the truth. Simon Ash, who was a, a Puritan long ago, one of his sermons, he writes this. It's as if Asaph had said, I've kept the fasts, I've observed the Sabbaths, I've heard the sermons, I've made the prayers, i received the sacraments, I've given alms, I've avoided sins, I've resisted temptations, I've withstood lusts, I have appeared for Christ and his cause and his servants, and this is all in vain. The administrations of God are not according to the sad surmises of his people's misgiven hearts. For though they through diffidence, are apt to give up their holy labors as lost. All their conscientious care and carriage is utterly cast away. I guess we don't talk like that anymore today. But he says, we tend to think all is lost. You know, the Lord doesn't pay attention to me. I've done all these things. I've done all these things. Yet remember what he says in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those 
who are pure in heart. Now remember, look at verse 15. Remember that Asaph says that first before he says all the rest of this stuff. And then in verse 15 he said, If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. Two things here. One, it's all right to have doubts. It's all right to have questions. It's all right to want to, to, to get, in a sense, get hold of the Lord or get hold of his word and say, what are you doing, Lord? Can't you show me the truth here? I don't understand this. It's okay. The faithful Christian can ask hard questions. But secondly, the wise Christian knows who to ask questions to and knows when to ask the questions. If he would have voiced his concerns without verse 1, remember, he's a leader. That would be like me standing up here on, on, a, on a Sunday morning and saying, you know, on the first Sunday I was here, let's go back, we'll go back 13 years ago. On the first Sunday I'm here, I stand up and go, you know what, I, Scripture is so confusing and I just don't understand God and I just don't even understand, you know, why he would care for us and I'm, I'm not even sure that this is real. If I would have stood up and said that on the first Sunday, would I have made the second? No, I would not have made the second. And the same thing, if Asaph would have stood up and said, the, the, the rich are prospering and they don't love God, and if he would have come from the, the pulpit, so to speak, or if he would, before he would have introduced the song, stood up and said, I am struggling terribly with, with these things. I am struggling terribly with the fairness of God, and I don't think God is fair and it's in vain that I've kept myself pure. But he doesn't start with that. He starts with what? Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. See, you start with this base of knowledge about God. This is the way God says he is. This is the way he says he acts. Surely God is good to those who belong to him. I know that. That's in the bank. I don't have to question that. I can question what he's doing. But understand, I question what he's doing with this knowledge, that he is good to those who belong to him. Spurgeon says, the thoughts with which the psalmist toyed for a time were never shared until after he had seen how sinful they were. Because he says, you know, if I had said these things, that would have cast doubt within the congregation. That would have just stirred the pot unnecessarily. doesn't mean you don't ask questions. It means you know who to ask questions to. Do you go to somebody who is less mature, weaker in the faith than you are, and say how you're struggling with these things from Scripture? Or do you go to somebody who is more mature, somebody who is deeper in their faith, somebody who's been a believer longer, who might actually have some answers for you? See, Asaph has got the answers. And then he begins to share his struggles. He says, God is good. Now let me tell you how I struggled. And then we'll see next week his conclusion. Okay? And his conclusion was, just like verse 1, God is good to those who are pure in heart. See, we can't... Uh, but ran. It's just not honest it's not and this isn't this is a word from people who are younger than me i hate to say younger than me 
but it's not authentic, Rand. To think that you can't ask questions. You can ask any question that you want. Ask a question to somebody that you expect to get a good answer from. Ask somebody a question about how does God act to somebody who's more mature in your faith, who has already wrestled with those things. There you can find answers. Oh, all right, let's, let's flip over to Hebrews chapter 12, okay? I want you to go there. We have to look at this in conjunction with what is going on here. And remember, no matter where you are as men and women of faith, no matter where you are in life, no matter what you do, if we do not demonstrate holiness... If we think to ourselves, holiness is not worth it, it's not worth the struggle, it's not worth everything that I go through, if we don't demonstrate holiness, that brings contempt upon the Lord. Because we say we believe. We say that this is the most important things in our lives. The world will not judge us on our theology, it will judge us on our behavior. Scripture's validity comes from the Lord. In the non-believer's eyes, if I say this is what Scripture says, and then I go and do something else, it is lessened in their eyes. Holiness and holy living by believers is a testimony to the inworking power of the Holy Spirit within us. It is a, a testimony to the life that is changed by the grace of God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that it'll all be easy living holy lives. Hebrews chapter 12. Sometimes the Lord, because he loves us, loves us more than we can understand, will discipline us. And in fact it is a guarantee that the Lord will discipline us. Because if he loves us, he will discipline us. If he does not love us, you don't have to worry about God's discipline. Okay? Now, Hebrews 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 talks about why Christ is so superior. Why Christ is superior to everything else that has come before him. If you're reading the Bible through in a year and you come to Leviticus and you go, oh... <laughs> This is, what does this mean? How can I get through Leviticus? Read a couple chapters of Leviticus and then come to Hebrews and read a couple chapters of Hebrews. And you'll find that here is the sacrificial system and all the minutia that had to be done and everything that had to be done just right. And then you come to Hebrews and go, but Christ is far superior. He is the sacrifice that has, has been, his blood has been shed once for all. It never has to be done again. So the first 10 chapters of Hebrews is reminding us how superior Christ is. Chapter 11, it's the great hall of faith. And these are the people who have lived out their faith. They did not see Christ. These are Old Testament saints. They did not see Christ, but they knew the righteousness of God. They knew the faithfulness, and they trusted. And now we come to chapter 12. Therefore, or because... 
Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run the race. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Strange. He endured the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before him, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Remember the people that author Hebrews is writing to are suffering. They're suffering persecution, and really they're in this balance. Should I go back to Judaism? Because the Jews over there are not being persecuted. And he's saying, no, no. Christ is far superior. Now they have not yet shed blood, verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And here's the passage in particular. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as, as sons. You've forgotten this. Let me remind you, he says, because you are what? Sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So, if you live your life without discipline, what is that a sign of? Uh, who loves you? Okay, who loves you? Oh, now, now I've shared, I got this call from a pastor. This is back in Pennsylvania. And one day, out of the blue, he says, Randy, can you come up? This is when I was working in Youth for Christ. Can you come up to the house? I said, sure. So I go up to the house. Now, this pastor and his wife came from the, uh, is it the, the kind of the Dr. Spock child-rearing thing? Um, don't, don't discipline your children. It will stifle their creativity. Um, you know, it will, it will uh, hinder their development and all this. So they were very careful in what they did and, and they they really didn't put parameters on their kids well the day I show up I said well you know what's going on and the boy who was 16 now are there any 16 year old boys out here okay he was uh, a head taller than her his mother okay and his mother said no we're, we're just not going to do that right now and he became so frustrated that he pushed her across the room and the parents couldn't understand why. They were like, why did this happen? How could, how could this be? And then he ran off. And they said, can you go find him? <laughs> so I, go, I, I stand outside the door and I'm like, well, where in the world could he be? So I just sit there and, and I think, okay, Lord, where, where is he? And I can hear the basketball bouncing around the corner. So I figured that, that's probably him. So I go over there. And, he, and he, you know, he, he didn't know discipline in his life. And when he responded, he responded out of, you know, hormones and 16-year-olds and, and never having discipline. And when he had a parameter in his life, he just didn't know what to do. So he pushed his mom all the way across the room. I don't believe he got a spanking that day. But, you know, that football player who made his son go get the switch, he, that's what the boy needed. Okay, the boy needed discipline because without discipline, you don't know that you're loved. And that's what scripture is saying here. For those whom the Lord loves, he's discipl he disciplines. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children, and you're not sons. If the Lord doesn't discipline you, then you're not his. Well, what form does discipline take? Asaph was in the midst of that. He is suffering. He's going through trials. And he's asking the Lord why. And if we jump to Hebrews, it's goes, the Lord can say, it's because I love you, Asaph. It's because i got plans for you. Okay, it's because I've created you for a particular purpose. You are a son. It is a mark of sonship if the Lord disciplines you. A mark of sonship if the Lord disciplines you. Because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So he's saying how, how much we have to realize how seriously God takes this fight against sin. And he wants us to be holy to the point that he is willing to discipline us. To take us out to the woodshed and teach us a lesson. Now I don't know what the woodshed is for you. I don't know how the Lord disciplines you. If you think you've gone through life and, and you're scratching your head and going, I don't, I don't know if the Lord's ever disciplined me. You know, what does this mean? You go home tonight. You go on your knees and, and begin to ask the Lord and to look at your life and say, Lord, how have you done this? Have I just missed it? Have I been so wrapped up in myself like, like Esaph? Have I been so focused upon my navel, upon my own self, that I've missed everything else? God takes sin very seriously, and he wants his people to be holy. All right, real quick, what's holiness? What good is holiness, really? Well, if you look at it from a purely pragmatic sense, I tried to come up with a good list. It's a reduction of stress. You don't have to remember who you said what to, because you always tell the truth. Remember? That's the problem with lying. You have to remember who you lied to last. There's no guilt to plague your mind. You're less likely to catch any number of diseases. You can always remember where you were and what you did last night. Your marriage will last longer. You will live longer. You will have greater contentment in life. All this from holiness? Yes, all this from holiness. From holy living, a study carried out by the Barna Group on how happy and satisfied are atheists in America. Okay, atheists and agnostics in America. According to several Barna polls, atheists and agnostics are pretty happy and they're pretty satisfied in life. But they aren't nearly as happy and as satisfied as Christians are. And in fact, you know who the most, ha- the most happiest, the happiest and the most satisfied people in America are? Evangelical Christians. We're just a happy group. Why? <laughs> Theologically speaking, because nothing can take us from his hand. Whom should I fear? I fear no man. Why? Because I'm his. My salvation is secure for all time. Does that mean I'm going to live an easy life? Uh, no, Scripture never says that. Scripture never says that. Let's read the end of Hebrews, verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the, fathers, uh, the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. 
Why does he discipline us? That we might share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Our Father's discipline is never imperfect. It is always just what we need. If we go to John's Gospel, Jesus says, I'm the vine dresser. Every vine that's not bearing fruit, I'm going to cut off. If I come and I prune you, what's the purpose of being pruned? So that you might be more fruitful. More fruitful. So Asaph goes, oh, poor me. I'm struggling. You know, maybe holiness is not worth it. But remember what verse 1 says. God is good to those especially who are pure in heart. Jonathan Edwards said, Though the wicked are in prosperity and are not in trouble as other men, yet the godly, though in affliction, are in a state infinitely better because they have God for their portion. They need desire nothing else. He that has God has it all. This is not a saying. This is not a platitude. Understand this. What else do I need than the Lord? I mean, he even says it. That little song, you seek first his kingdom, what happens? Everything else is added unto you. Now, does that mean I get everything? Does that mean... I go up and spend $2 in Tennessee, and I'm going to win the lotto. No, it doesn't mean that. It means that everything that the Lord deems for my holiness will be brought into my life. And the question is, will I see it in that way? Will I see it as his work? Let's pray. Lord, holiness is worth it, but it's not easy. Living a holy life sometimes will put us outside the norm. It'll put us outside of a variety of of what society says is right and what society says is necessary. But yet we have to decide, do I I care about what society says or do I care about what you say? If I'm going to live a holy life, it's going to be conformed to your standards and by your definition. And I have to be ready to accept your discipline. Because you discipline those whom you love, you discipline those whom you love, so they may demonstrate holiness. And it may be to your glory and your purposes. Lord, these are not easy things. It is not easy to struggle. It is not easy to face a trial. It is not easy to be in the midst of of, of, of Bad things happening. I mean, it's easy to be envious of those whose lives are easy. It's easy to just want something to to make life simpler. But yet our call is for you. To seek you and your kingdom before everything else. And trust that all the other things that come into our lives are for your purposes. To shape us so that our lives might demonstrate the holiness that you call us to. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.